You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I am excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order a copy. And if you're listening after March 1st, run to your local bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You will not regret it. The book has a foreword by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Get Unmuted, the book, today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Carrie Jenkins. Carrie is a Canada Research Chair in Philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Her philosophical interest is in the philosophy of love. She is the author of the book, What Love Is and What It Could Be and the host of the wonderful podcast, Labels of Love. In this episode, we talk about love and happiness, their relationship and connection, sad love, love crafting, and so much more. Hello, Carrie, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I am really good. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on. Carrie, how did you get interested in philosophy? This depends whether you mean the activity, philosophy, or you mean the academic discipline? Oh, let's, let's do both. Yeah, okay. Well, so, I mean, the activity itself, I don't think I ever got interested in that. I think that just, I've always been interested. <laughs> and honestly, I think this is true for, for most children. We are really interested in what's real, what is the world like, what's right and wrong, how do people around us behave? And unless someone tells us to stop it, we just stay interested in those things. So I think everyone is is quite naturally inclined to be interested in philosophy. But the academic discipline that we call philosophy, which I think is a separate thing, I was looking for a degree subject when I was 17 years old. So I was in the UK where you choose, you specialize early. And when you go to college, you'll have one subject, that'll be your subject. And because I was kind of good at writing, but also good at maths and things like that, um, someone suggested philosophy as a good balance. Uh, skills. And um, I read a couple of things. I think I probably read like uh, Descartes and Bertrand Russell's Introduction Philosophy, Problems of Philosophy. And um, they seem to be asking really good questions and it was pretty interesting. So I was sort of hooked and I I really didn't look back again until uh, a few years ago when I started to realize the academic discipline of philosophy was not all of philosophy and it wasn't all even of the things I really wanted to do. Now, when you say it's not all of philosophy, what do, you, what do you mean by that? I mean, there's a lot of philosophy going on that is not in contained in academia, and certainly not in the part of academia, the little subsection of academia that has the label philosophy on the corridor outside. I mean, you know, things like people, a lot of people who are writers are writing philosophy. A lot of people who are in other academic departments are doing it, but also just people living their lives are doing the same thing. They're trying to figure it out. 
Right. I, I really agree with this. I, recently, I was watching YouTube videos like I always do. And I came across an interview of, of writer Zadie Smith. And she was talking about emotions, since both of us is interested in emotions. She was talking about emotions. And it was so philosophically rich. And this was about the time that her collection of essays, Get Free, came out. And so I, I got the book. And there's nothing but philosophy throughout those pages. I mean, she even referenced what I hear is that one of our close friends um, is a philosopher, but there's not it. it the, the essays are so philosophically rich. And so I totally agree with you. There's so much uh, philosophy that's taking place outside of what we traditionally call academic philosophy. Yeah, um, totally. And I think I mean, this has just always been the case. And it's only really now is the uh, the anomaly or this weird idea that we kind of segregate philosophy off into its little enclave. Um, and everything else outside of that is not philosophy. That's a very recent and weird thing to do. Like before before the 20th century, you know, it was a lot more normal for people to consider themselves to be, I don't know, a natural philosopher. And they would be doing science one day and then reflecting on ethics the next day. And this, that was really normal. And, you know, people even in the sort of 20th century continental philosophical tradition would write a novel in order to try to get their ideas out there. Um, but then they might also write a nonfiction book doing the same thing. And they didn't think that was weird. And, it's only it's only very recently that certain sections of academia have started to think that that's weird. So you've written a book on love. You are currently writing another book on love. So let's talk about love and and something else along with that happiness. So so two words that I th- I think those words are, are quite common in our lexicon. That is love and happiness. It's also desired. But I've always had the suspicion that we're not always either clear about what we mean by them or what they mean for us. So and and I'm saying this out of experience when I hear people say that they love me. Usually my follow up is, what do you mean by that? Right. Because I'm not too sure what that what that means in all contexts. So for you, I know you've written a whole book about it. So I'm, 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 I'm asking you to kind of be just kind of sum it up in, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes here. But but for you, how would you define love? And then I'm interested in how would you define happiness? Yeah, so I mean, the the short and really disappointing answer is I would not define either of those terms in kind of maybe the way you mean, which is to give a definition that is going to cover all the ground. Because I mean, those words are too huge. You're right in saying they're they're very common in, in our lexicon, very much desired or positioned as desirable. And actually, one of the really interesting connections between them, I think, is they are the two things that a good person should want, right? We define like a good life as one full of those and not money or material possessions or fame or success, right? Um, so they're kind of interesting twins to each other in that way. And it's certainly not like a coincidence that the romantic love stories end with happy ever after. These are love and happiness are just kind of really closely intertwined in a lot of the cultural collective unconscious. But the reason I wouldn't define them and And here I'm talking about giving the kind of definition that could be given in a sentence. The reason I don't try to do that is because these are words that just have multiple different kinds of use and they just mean very different things in very different contexts and for different people. And I actually don't think that's necessarily a a flaw or a fault or something we have to correct. So, I mean, one of the writers who's really interesting that I'm in dialogue with here is Bell Hooks, who says we do need to define love and particularly Um, She says we need to do that for clarity around the difference between love and abuse. So an abusive relationship just by definition can't be a loving one. 
How do we know that? Well, love, and the way she puts it is you've got to think about the verb, love rather than the noun. So don't think about a feeling or you know how it feels to you on the inside. If you are not acting towards a person in a loving way, um, that's not love. You don't love that person. And so she says that's the definition. And I, I'm really on board all the way up to the last little bit there. Um, and, and really, it's only around this kind of attempt to give one definition that's then going to be um, for everybody's use. I think the really kind of crucial thing is to have the discussions between ourselves as to what we mean. So exactly what you were saying there, where someone says, I love you, and then you say, what do you mean by that? Um, and it's really, that's the key question, right? What do you mean by that? What do you mean when you say it to me? That's what I need to know or what we need to know between us in that conversation. Um, I don't need to tell someone else what to mean when they say that to someone else. So that, I think it's like these, we need the clarity and we need to understand love. And sometimes the conversation might be a one person, <laughs> might be a monologue with ourselves first. Right? What do I mean by it? And that's that's the work that I think is really crucial. And that's the, the part of Bell Hooks is um, thinking there that I totally agree with that clarity is going to do really important things in all of these um, kind of very tricky situations in normal life. But that I, I don't go as far as saying, no, we're going to, we're going to give a definition that's once and for all. And I think that the same goes for happiness really as well. So let's talk about their relationship. So I'm going to ask you two questions and I'm, I'm so interested in how you're going to respond to them. So the first question is, can we be happy without love? So I have to ask who we are because, um, <laughs> you know. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah, this is always like, this is always a problem with, I'm just, people want to ask questions with, with a word we in them. And then, um, and I always have to ask who, who who's the we? Um, because again, we're not, we're probably not going to get just one answer here. I mean, the first thing to do is say, well, do you mean like romantic love? Do you mean falling in love? Or do you mean experiencing any kind of love in your life? Now, I do think that having no kind of love in, in one's life can be, you know, for at least most people, very traumatic. But that's not to say everybody should have a uh, romantic relationship where they're going to be miserable. And in fact, that slide from the first thing to the second thing. So from saying like, oh, everybody needs love, right? To saying, so you need to couple up and settle down in what looks like a kind of standard nuclear family configuration, or you're doomed to a life of misery, that's a bad argument. <laughs> the first, the premise is great. The conclusion obviously doesn't follow once you separate them out. And so, you know, it might be that there are plenty of people who could be happy without a romantic love relationship. Could they be happy without any kind of love in their lives at all? I don't know. I mean, maybe certain kinds of very spiritual individuals. I believe throughout history, there have been some people who have found and again, maybe happy is the wrong word, but like kind, kind of contentment in very solitary lives. But maybe they experience love in other ways or with whatever other um, parts of themselves or their spiritual practice. So, I mean, <laughs> you really would have to say what, who, who we're talking about here. But I think certainly, certainly the main thing I want to emphasize is plenty of people are happy without romantic love. Okay, so here is the remix version to a second question. All right. Is it possible? And in some ways, it, my intuition says yes. So what I'm going to do is qualify and not mention, let's not mention family love. Let's talk about romantic love, for example. So is it possible for there to be, for someone to be in love in a romantic kind of way and for happiness not to exist at the same time? Yeah. Um, this one gets trickier, partly because, and I think this is something that we really have built into our notion of being in love. 
that it's it's if you're not happy with the person something is very deeply wrong and I mean there's so much packed into the idea of being happy that makes this word really complicated. So let me let me give a couple of examples and then I will, I promise I'll come back and answer your question. So being happy, um, one of the worries I have around the way that is perceived currently, the kind of cultural context that I find myself in, this idea that we're, we are individually responsible for being happy, making ourselves happy. Um, and if we don't, if we aren't happy, then we're not practicing enough gratitude or whatever, or we're not... Um, being sufficiently, we're not taking the right kind of action in our own individual lives to make our own individual selves happy. So that very conveniently kind of directs us away from all of the social and socio-political machinery that might be making plenty of us miserable <laughs> and saying just, no, just, you know, do, do more yoga or something because that's, that's the problem. Like each individual is responsible. And I'm not saying don't do yoga. The yoga is great. But I also saying like happiness and the, the presence or absence of it can depend on so many factors interweaving with each other that I think it's really important not to kind of think of it so much as an individual phenomenon. And so with all of that in the background, could two people like be miserable in a kind of conventional, romantic, coupley, permanent monogamous relationship? Maybe so, maybe so, and that could be a real love relationship. Why? Well, I don't know, but maybe they're they're dirt poor and they live in the USA, and the circumstances of that make it really, you know, very difficult to to survive. Um, and survival is going to be a grind every day. They're not going to, however much yoga they do, and they probably don't have time to do a lot of yoga if they're working several jobs. That they're not going to wake up like singing that the hills are alive with the sound of music, and that's okay. And that's not their fault. And it doesn't make their love not real love or anything like that. And then the other kind of case that I think is really important is trying to understand the links between mental health and relationships and the possibility that someone who is, let's say, someone who has long-term depression, can, oh, if, we, if we require that person to be capable of being happy in order for them to be in love, we're kind of... And we're kind of defining quite a large, I mean, depression is a very common mental illness to have, and it's not generally compatible with a lot of happiness. And so you're, you're kind of defining out a lot of a lot of people out of the category of being, quotes, in love just because of an illness. And so, you know, I think for all these reasons, we do have to take seriously the possibility of sad love and to to kind of, in some ways, re-examine the the ideology around the happy ever after and think about where that where that comes from. Talk a little bit more about this this concept of sad love. So sad love, I mean, it's just a kind of a shorthand for a situation where people are in love and and they're not happy. So it could be because let's say you have a, a depressed partner. Are you going to say to that partner, you're not happy, therefore you don't love me? I think that would be that sounds wrong to my ears. I mean, not only cruel, but just false. <laughs> just doesn't sound right, as a matter of fact, um, to conclude that because this person is is not happy, they're not in love. And I mean, you can you can also notice this kind of connection at work when people when people are trying to find out if your relationship is a good relationship, and they say, "Are you happy with so and so?" If you say, "Well, I'm not happy at all," so, um, so no, I'm not happy with them, but I, I like. That doesn't mean that, that they are doing something wrong or that I need to get out of this relationship because I'm not really in love with the person or whatever. So, yeah, I think um, I think there are circumstances where happiness 
can come apart from love and and we need to take that seriously and think about happiness in its broader context by which i mean including things like um structural drivers of unhappiness not just individual drivers and also conditions that you know whether they be structural or individual like mental health or physical health conditions that might lead to a lack of happiness but don't thereby mean that the person is incapable of of living generally speaking their a full life in other ways so it seems like there's 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 kind of two ways that we can look at that with the with the person happy with the person right so it could be the case that i am you know just physically with this person right we have partner up and it is that it is the case that structurally let's just say i lost my job i am not happy I'm still physically married or, or with this person or friends with this person. So I'm not happy with this person, but it's not because of this person or it's not as a result of the actions of this person. And then we can look at with in the other sense in, in which it is because of the person. Right. So this person is not making me happy. This person perhaps is cheating on me or this person. We are no longer compatible in the ways that we that we used to or we're, quote unquote, growing apart. Right. So it seems like there's two ways that you can look at the with. And so it makes it makes perfect sense to me that I can still be in love and not be happy. I mean, I grew up poor. We loved each other. Right. But it would seem it, it gets more, a little bit more difficult when that with is I'm in, I'm not happy because of you. And so I'm not happy because you are abusive. I'm not happy uh, because you're not interested. I'm not happy because we're no longer compatible. So how do you how do you tease that apart? I think that's great. And I, I mean, the, the happy with is actually very interesting. Linguistically, happy with is just a really interesting construction. Because sometimes it doesn't mean you're happy, right? I can be happy with something, just meaning that it's fine or I'm satisfied, it's it's good. I'm happy with that. It doesn't mean I'm going to run out my door, you know, singing the hills are alive in the morning. But I actually, and this is another useful point, maybe point to make here, there's happiness is another kind of broad word that covers things like that kind of very feeling really up and good. But also sometimes you get you get it used to, to mean something more like just contentment where it's, it's calm. Happiness doesn't have to be this kind of super hyperactive, yay kind of state. It might just be, I'm good. Things are good. They're fine. And that kind of quiet contentment, you know, sometimes when people ask, are you happy with someone? And you say to yourself, well, it's not like it used to be when, you know, we were, <laughs> we were kind of all very excited to, to see each other every time. And I get that like racing heartbeat every time that they would come in the room or whatever. So am I, am I really happy with them? Um, that might be because we're forgetting to look at that that second sense of happiness, the contentment, um, this sort of more secure, stable kind of happiness. Um, and so, I mean, again, I'm, I, the, the answer is kind of disappointing and it's very kind of stereotypical philosopher answer, but it just really depends what you mean by being happy. Um, I think definitely there are cases where, you know, someone is directly causing unhappiness. And, and those are the kinds of cases where you obviously you need to take action, you need to make a change. So let's, let's talk about an interesting concept you have, what you call love crafting. So what is love crafting? What does it entail? What does it involve? And why is it important on your account? So love crafting, that terminology is borrowed from the, uh, the concept of job crafting. So job crafting is not from philosophy world. This is from, I think it's somewhat in a school of management and school of business. And they came up with this idea that if people basically sort of tailor their jobs, so they take their job description 
And then they might kind of add things onto that or maybe take things away or just emphasize particular parts of the job, not others. People who do that and take some kind of control or agency over their working lives in that way, they tended to experience greater happiness, greater job satisfaction, and I mean, actual thriving or wellness generally. And the researchers, they've been looking at this for a while, they found that that's not just a correlation that was actually, you you give someone more job crafting to do, and then they start to do better and be happier. So I found that completely fascinating. And what I thought was, well, in a sense, being a partner, being a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever, is a little bit like a job description. It's like like a role that we're given to perform. And there's kind of a script for it, right? You know, the, the kind of scripts you're supposed to go through when you're dating somebody, um, and especially gendered scripts, right? So you're supposed to wait for the guy to ask, the woman's supposed to wait for the guy to ask her out, and all this da 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 The scripting is very intense, and it sort of gives you a job description for girlfriend, boyfriend, partner. And so I thought, what if you just took that idea of job crafting And you did that with these roles that are roles for for loving somebody. So you take the job description of wife, let's say. I'm a wife. But what what I've decided to do with that job description for being a wife is, I think, very similar to job crafting. So I see certain aspects of what that entails that that I like and they're valuable to me. So I do those. I do lots of those and I put a lot of effort into that. There are other aspects of being a wife um, as traditionally kind of scripted, like, for example, using your husband's surname instead of the one that you had before, that I don't like, and I don't find to be aligned with my values. So I don't do those bits. And there's lots of other stuff too. I mean, one of the, for myself, one of the kind of most controversial ones is I'm not monogamous. I'm not a monogamous partner. And being a wife, that certainly is kind of quite tightly built into the job description of a wife as I've been handed it. And I've chosen to reject that part of the job description. Um, So all of this is to say love crafting is basically job crafting for being in a loving relationship. And it's about loving intentionally, really, or with agency, with some sense of control, as opposed to feeling passive and just either waiting around for the quotes magic to happen or unquestioningly adopting the roles that we're given by society. Like society literally thinks it's the boss of us and tells us (laughs) how we're supposed to live our lives. And the love crafter just says, well, I like these bits, I'll do those bits, but not those, thank you. That that part's not aligned with me, with myself, with my values. Can you give us two lessons in love crafting? So one of my thoughts is that this is going to be a collaborative kind of craft or art form, um, however you like to think of it. And so A lot of philosophers of love have talked about coming together. Love is a matter of um, coming together and and forming some kind of a we um, with a person, coming back to that word again. And this we or the kind of the the relationship, you might like to think of it that way, is kind of, it's a collaborative project and not just something that you make together like a picture and then you frame it and put it on the wall it's actually a continuing, it's more like an installation piece, right? It just keeps going. It's like a living thing. It's going to grow. It's going to change. And part of the art and part of the craft is seeing that and being able to to adapt to that. Otherwise, that thing you're creating is going to die if it's, if it's not able enabled to change and to grow. So that's one thought. And then another thought that I, that I think is really, really important in, in all of this stuff is a reaction to this idea that 
emotion and reason are somehow inherently in conflict, right? They're going to pull you apart and you'll have to choose between your head and your heart and, oh no, what are you going to do? I think that's just not true. They're not inherently in conflict. And actually, I think, you know, emotion and reason, the head and the heart, however you like to think about it, those can pull us together rather than pulling us apart. And I think that a lot of the a lot of the ways we're instructed not to, quote, overthink love are attempting to draw that binary distinction and then tell us to throw the reasoning part away. And I think that's just a, that's a mistake. So when I talk about love crafting, um, to the extent that it kind of doesn't sound romantic, because the romantic thing to do is this passive waiting around for the magic to happen and then not asking any questions about it, or even saying like explicitly it cannot be understood, which conveniently also means it cannot be critiqued. Those are really dangerous instructions to throw our reason out the window in favor of the heart. And so my my thought here is just, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't. You can you can be a loving thinking person. Um, and actually my best understanding right now of what a wise person is is a loving thinking person whose head and heart are pulling them together. Well we can see how how lovecrafting can apply to our interpersonal lives. We've been talking about romantic relationships, for example. I wonder, have you thought about what lovecrafting would look like in a political sense, in our political lives? So this, this is a really interesting question. I mean, partly it's, I think those, those overlap a lot. I mean, I, our personal lives are our political lives and vice versa to some extent. But I think even more kind of explicitly, you can think of things like how people treat women in their own family or in their own home, for example, and how they treat the women in their work environment and how they treat the women who are running for president. You know, those things are not going to be independent of one another. If we have certain expectations of the women that we are, let's say, closest to, that they'll provide free emotional labor and care and cleaning, and then we see a woman running for president, and then we think, well, hang on a second, women are not the kind of people who do that. They're the kind of people who provide free emotional labor and care and cleaning. So you could, those are fairly direct ways that the ways that we love within our lives and the ways that we interact with other people politically, it can be pretty directly connected. Um, but the other thought I was having about this is that, and I think this might be kind of, this is something I just need to think about more because this is a new thought based on your very interesting question. When we think about the relationships that we have with let's say, with the state that we are a citizen of or with our fellow citizens in that state, there's kind of a script for that too, right? There's kind of a role that you're supposed to play as, say, a patriotic person. You're supposed to fly flags in certain ways and cheer for certain things and, and then also feel certain ways about other groups. So there's this kind of patriotism that I want to call toxic patriotism um, that induces an us-versus-them mentality where to love your country is thereby to denigrate other countries and to regard them as less than and other. And I think that one of the, one of the ways I'm thinking about what would lovecrafting look like if it was to get involved in that relationship, well, maybe you can design your own patriotism. And I actually think, I actually think people are doing this. So I've seen people you know, in, in America, um, my and my husband's an American citizen, so it's kind of very interesting to watch his relationship with his state as it's kind of changed over the last few years. But I see people, and, and partly kind of through, through him, he kind of shows me that this is happening, 
designing their own patriotism and looking to things like that Emma Lazarus poem that's on the Statue of Liberty in the in the base of the Statue of Liberty. And it has this line, uh, you know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And they can take that as inspiration for the kind of relationship that they want their patriotism to consist of, right? Rather than taking the lead from, say, you know, President Trump's idea of what it is to make America great again or to love America. And so, you know, I think it is possible to craft any kind of relationship or any kind of role or script that you've been given. And so even even when it's something that is a form of loving, so you have the script for loving a partner, you have a script for loving your country, you don't have to just take that script as a done deal. You can say, oh, these are the parts of that that I think I, I like. These are traditions that are of interest to me. These ones are not. And in fact, they, they don't align with my, my values and, and who I am or who I want to be in the world. So I'm not going to perform that part of the script. I'm just not going to do that. But I still love my country. I still love my partner. And the way I do that is like this. I like that. What do you think is the, the greatest stereotype or popular or most often assumed stereotype that people have about you given your philosophical topic of interest? That's so interesting. Yeah, I think that most of the preconceptions and stereotypes people have about me are kind of overwhelmed by the fact that I'm a polyamorous woman. And so any other fact about people, <laughs> about me that people are learning, <laughs> they don't really even have time to form their stereotypes about that because they're so kind of like, oh my God, um, she's, she's, she's not monogamous. Then. And, and, you know, you, the bundle of assumptions that usually comes with that are these very kind of slut shamey, um, oh, you just are interested in having like as much sex as possible, as many people as possible, and um, you're going to die of, of sexually transmitted diseases like very soon. Um, that's the bundle I usually get, to be honest. And I don't very often get people assuming that because I'm, say, a philosopher of love, that I'm a, a very loving person <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. or anything like that. So, I mean, people do tend to assume that I'll have a, a definition or theory of love to give them. So I usually I'm really disappointing <laughs> right. in that way. <laughs> I, suppose I do have right. a theory, but it's not a definition and, and it's not really... It's rarely communicable in the in the space of a short uh, sentence or two. Yeah, I think I think honestly, the the assumptions about me are kind of they're just overwhelmed by the assumptions about non-monogamous people. Were you were you aware of the risks? I don't know about the historical chain, but you were you aware of the risks that hey, I want to talk about love, but also I'm in a love relationship, a love relationships that people totally disagree with or probably are confused by. But I'm going to talk about love. So it seems as if, did you consider that kind of risk-taking? So I thought that like a lot of people would say I was biased about love because my own love relationships are unconventional. And so they'd be saying, well, you know, she loves in this particular way. So of course, her perspective is biased. And, you know, I, I did actually write, write a little bit about this in my book. And I said, well, so people who love the the other way, the quotes normal way, are then not biased because their experience is the normal one and mine is the different one. So that makes, I, I, so there's, there is that kind of, I think there is that kind of assumption that because, because I, I am not a monogamous person, I'm not in monogamous relationships, whatever I say, whatever I have to say about love is going to be biased um, in favor of non-monogamy, which, you know, maybe it is, but then I think everybody has a bundle of biases and it'd be right, weird right. to assume that being, you know, right. the outsider means you haven't thought about that stuff because probably, 
you're more likely to have thought about it if you've been questioned on it at literally every turn for the entire time that you've been practicing it. So um, yeah, that, that one, I was certainly aware of, of the risks. The, the one risk actually, and this one is not even so directly a risk to me, but, but indirectly it is. The, the thing I didn't anticipate was the racism. So I'm in non, um, I'm in relationships with people who are not white. So interracial relationships, I am white. And I get hate mail from random strangers on the internet that is super racist about my partners. And, and I didn't, because white privilege, I didn't anticipate that. I didn't see it coming. I was kind of floored the first few times that it happened, I was really distraught because, I mean, partly because it's, this is not even attacking me. This is going after people that I love in this really kind of pulsive, repugnant way. And that was, that was a risk I didn't, I didn't anticipate just because I hadn't, it's, it's not something I've ever had to deal with when I, you know, would be um, moving through the world normally. So that was, that was an eye opener for me. Wow. I wonder what is your favorite book on love? And it could be nonfiction, it could be a novel, it could be a poem, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Recom- recommend it to us <laughs> and tell us why, why, why we should read it. So I love Bell Hooks is all about love, especially the first half of that book. And it's very good. It's very important, even though I don't agree with everything in it. Same thing, actually, for uh, Simone de Beauvoir, it's The Second Sex. She has a chapter in there called The Woman in Love. And I think it's, that was very influential for me to read that. Again, not because I agree with everything in it, just because these are things that I think people sh- should think about. So yeah, I think when you triangulate between like Bell Hooks and Simone de Beauvoir, you probably land on like roughly where I am with this stuff. <laughs> right. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for this conversation. I-, I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. Yeah, me too. Thank you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.